Robert Moses, son of a janitor and a housewife who believed in education, spent the first half of the 60s organizing voters in Mississippi, in the towns and cities many of the people here today have visited. He risked his life, he was jailed, people he worked with were assassinated, the killers freed or never even brought to trial. After a draft notice came in 1966 when he was 31, he left the U.S. for Canada and Tanzania, where he taught math. After Jimmy Carter granted amnesty to Drafter Sisters, he returned to the U.S., finished his graduate work at Harvard, and dove into teaching algebra. As Bob Moses puts it, the civil rights movement ensured that minorities had a voice. Now they needed economic access, and that started with education specifically the math and science skills essential to succeeding in a tech-dependent society. So my first question is sort of way in the future from all this, we'll come back to the history. Um, you've been thinking about the preamble to the Constitution, we the people. Is there a we the people? So, so that's a the question of the reach of the preamble across its history. Um, you know, um, in 1787, uh, the we the people were the undocumented propertied white men. Um, and uh, so that went on for um, roughly three quarters of a century. Um, and then after the war, um, the preamble, the reach of the we, the people, um, took in the Africans, um, the African men as part of we, the people. Women still weren't part of we, the people, right? Um, so, so there's a question um, about how the, the preamble has operated um, across the country's history. Um, I think you, you have to think of the preamble and in the beginning uh, with um, Article 4, Section 2, Paragraph 3, um, the part of the Constitution that designates another class of constitutional people, uh, the constitutional property. So Africans are designated in that article. So, so you begin, the, the country begins with two classes of constitutional people, constitutional people in the preamble and constitutional property in the uh, Article 4. Section 2, Paragraph 3. Um, and so that sets up the, the underlying conundrum of the country, which goes on to this day. Um, so of course, the issue of the preamble comes back up uh, with 11 million undocumented people in the country now uh, because in some sense, um, the preamble, um, if you think about it, 
Um, well, Patrick Henry w said, well, what is this talk about we the people? Um, it should be we the states. Right. And um, so that was the underlying tension uh, between the idea of whether the country was actually going to have some sense of uh, people who were citizens of a country and that it should mean something, as opposed to thinking that your primary citizenship is with states, right? Um, and of course, the country's fighting that battle right now. Um, um, it, it's had a really hard time. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, the only, I mean, the civil rights movement, you know, tackled education and voting and public accommodations. But the only place where the country was actually able to elevate the concept of being a citizen of the country, uh, regardless of race, was in the public space of public accommodations. So there's no other place in the country in which the country has come to grips with the idea that um, you are a citizen of the country and for that reason um, you are entitled to, you know, dignity and um, flourishing. Um, this th for all of that work, the only result in terms of this basic constitutional issue of, well, who are, what does it mean to be a constitutional person in this country and who are the constitutional people? Um, the only place the country was able to um, make that work was uh, in the idea of, well, public accommodations, everybody uh, can be a human person um, in that area. Right. Thank you. Um, so we're going to get into a couple of questions. We'll kind of start from the history and work our way toward the present. Um, so one of the questions that came up for me that really um, seemed to fit well with the work that Project Pilgrimage is doing was the image of seeing in the movie that we were talking about um, all the way, seeing you, Stokely Carmichael, Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, the president of the NAACP. Wilkins. Wilkins. Sitting at a table trying to come up with the best way forward. Um, Which never happened. <laughs> so you were often right in the middle of um, the crossroads of these different organizations which means that you were often right in the middle of um, intergenerational work. And uh, this seems to be an age-old challenge of trying to find a balance of wisdom and caution and energy and courage and new ideas and old ideas. Um, how did you navigate this space? And 
what advice could you offer? Yeah, so the movie is misleading. Have, have people I don't know th about the movie all the way? No. Not a lot of people. I know about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they told him that. So, yeah, so this is a movie about um, LBJ and uh, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and the, the convention challenge in 1964, right? Um, and so, I mean, I was never part of those kind of meetings with King and, um, and Wilkins. Uh, once, actually, I, w I went to one meeting. Um, if you, the Civil Rights Movement was a, um, a partnership of the bottom and the top. Um, so we were at the bottom working with uh, the sharecroppers um, in Mississippi. Uh, at the top was a little-known person. Anybody here of Stephen Currier? Right. The Taconic Foundation? So it's not part of the, you know, the history telling of the movement, but um, Kennedy um, set up, had Courier set up the Taconic Foundation, um, and uh, Courier ran it. His wife was a Mellon, and they used Mellon money. Uh, and by 1962, they had pretty well um, um, gathered all of the foundations and people who were funding uh, things dealing with civil rights. Um, he took over the Southern Regional Council's budget. Do you guys know about the Southern Regional Council? So that was um, the organization out of Atlanta that was sort of the establishment Southern organization dealing with civil rights. Uh, Vernon Jordan uh, at that time um, headed up their voter education program, right? Um, but the money came through the Taconic Foundation. I mean, you go into Courier's office uh, at 666 Park Avenue in New York, right? Um, and on his desk were the chits for the Southern Regional Council, right? But so the one time I went to such a meeting was a meeting that uh, Courier called. Um, Wilkins, Farmer from Core, King, Dorothy Hyde, um, uh, um, Whitney Young from Urban League, right? I was there with Jack Greenberg. Jack Greenberg was head of the League of Defense Fund. Um, so all of the heads of the, the organizations were allowed to bring somebody as um, somebody who was, uh, had some documentation about what they were doing. So for Greenberg, I was part of documentation about what was going on with the voting, right? Uh, so, um, so that was, I think, the only time I was at such a meeting. Um, but on your question, um, it was Ella Baker and Anzie Moore, C.C. Bryant, 
he was head of the NACP in Macomb, and E.W. Steptoe, who was head of the NACP in, um, in Amec County. So, so you have to think that you're in a kind of low-grade guerrilla warfare, right? And so in order to have a guerrilla warfare, there has to be some kind of uh, base uh, into which you can disappear uh, and out of which you emerge to do whatever. So, so that's where the intergenerational uh, part came, because AMZ and CC and EW, uh, they, had, they were all uh, people who had uh, figured out uh, not only how to survive in Mississippi, they had figured out how to thrive in struggle in Mississippi, right? How to live a life and still be uh, in struggle. Um, and so, so that's where I learned about uh, this issue of, well, how, do, how is it that what people have experienced and been through um, become part of an insurgency, right? Um, so, so that part is true, and, and Ella was an important part of that, but she wasn't on the ground in Mississippi, right? Um, Just to follow up on that, how did you, what did you learn from those people? and how they live their life in struggle, and how did you come to recognize that you were living that life in struggle? Accommodating it, maybe. Mm -hmm. so, so part of what you learn is um, you can't, think or you can't live your life as though you are always in danger, right? Um, and so you learn that from watching them live their lives, right? Um, because they, all of them, in some sense, had family, right? Um, and um, so you, you were moving in and out of danger, but so you had to know when you were actually in danger. Um, but you also had to be able to know when you weren't, right? And how you live uh, when you weren't in danger. So if you couldn't figure that out, then you, you burnt out, right? Um, and so, you know, there were SNCC field secretaries that did burn out. They, um, and we weren't, we weren't really, uh, we didn't know how to um, train people. I mean, the training was sort of you, you jump in the water and either you swim or you don't.
So Ella taught a big lesson, which was, um, you know, the sit-in movement um, broke out, and she called the, the, the leaders of the movement together. Um, and so she's a woman, uh, and the heads of all the civil rights organizations are men. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they want the young people to be youth groups of their adult organizations. Um, but um, Ella is um, not only strong enough to um, interface with that group, but um, strong enough to allow the students to make their own choice. Uh, so she created the space that allowed the students to own their uh, movement. And so, so that gets to the question of um, leading and organizing. Because um, it was clear to her from the beginning that she was not trying to pull together a group that she would be the leader of. And, and I watched her in the end when SNCC was dissolving because uh, she, she probably could have um, stepped in, but um, I learned a big lesson um, that so SNCC belonged to the kids. It was theirs to uh, develop and mature, it was theirs to destroy. Right. Um, and she, she wouldn't step in. Right. So that issue about organizing has um, carried over into Mississippi. Um, the, I mean, I, you have to think that the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party is a direct result of of that, right? Um, the idea that um, you leave a space open, so you, you know, you don't become the person that's on the photographs of the newspapers and the magazines of Jet Magazine and Ebony, um, because that space, if you occupy it, then no one else can occupy it, or they have to compete to occupy it. So there was actually a space left open that f was available, and Fang Luhema stepped into that space, right? But that keeping that space open was part of, that's a deliberate part of, of organizing and something that uh, we learned from Ella. Well, that kind of gets into the next question I had about um, class within the movement. So you were saying that you guys went to Mississippi to work with sharecroppers specifically. And um, can you just talk a little bit about 
that choice um, and then the experience of that with just navigating all these different um, different classes within the movement and being the representative um, of a class that was often rejected. Yeah, no, so, so I came up working class. I mean, we, w we didn't have money, we weren't poor, but we didn't have money. Um, I grew up in the projects, Harlem River Houses across from the Yankee Stadium. Uh, we had to walk a mile to get to a store that we could shop at. Um, so we shopped twice a month. Um, so, so I didn't have a class issue. Um, and actually, the, the, the Mississippi movement didn't have a class issue because um, for up until 1963, all the field secretaries working in Mississippi had grown up in Mississippi, right? Um, and they were just high school kids that gravitated to the movement and that we um, sort of used SNCC. I mean, what we would do is make sure that they traveled in SNCC, right? Because SNCC had the energy um, and so that's where they learned who they were, right? What they were doing. But I mean, I I got to the voting through AMSI, so I had no idea. You know, I'd gone through all the fancy schools, but I learned about the Berlin Wall the Berlin, the Iron Curtain, right? We didn't learn about the Cotton Curtain. Um, and so it blew my mind when um, Ella and Jane sent me to, on this trip and in the summer of 1960 and uh, AMSI, remember the 1957 Voting Rights Act happened, uh, Eisenhower was president and Johnson was the majority leader, and they put together uh, the first Civil Rights Act since Reconstruction. And um, it set up the Civil Rights Division in the Justice Department. And they had in mind um, Tuskegee professors who uh, could qualify under anybody's standard. They didn't have SNCC in mind, right? Um, and, but AMSI, but by the time I got to AMSI in 60, he, he had all the data. They began pouring out the data, right? So it blew my mind that there was this whole congressional district where a majority of the eligible voters were black uh, in the Delta, but um, they had never represented, well, they, they couldn't even vote, right? Um, so, so that's, it was AMSI who said, um, look, because AMSI really was uh, following the sit-in 
movement. And he, I think he really um, understood that there was a new kind of energy here. Um, and he was anxious to get that energy into Mississippi. Um, so I, I went to work on AMSI's program for SNCC. I, worked, I wanted to work for SNCC on AMSI's program, right? And AMSI had grown up in Tallahatchie County. Um, I mean, he was just like a tree. He was part of the landscape. Right. So, so there was no, no sense about, you know, because, I mean, Amzi, he would get on the, you know, the people who were caught up in the system, right? Because if you were teaching or if you were principal of a school, then you were trapped in the system. I mean, Mississippi, you got to think, there were only three lawyers in the whole <coughs> state that were black. None of them had passed the bar. Um, I don't think there was a pediatrician, a black pediatrician in the whole state. You know. So the middle class was just paper thin. But even that middle class, um, they couldn't move, you know unless they decided to cross the line, right? I can't remember the judge who said this to you, but you had this remarkably logical answer. The judge said something to you like, what are you doing organizing all these illiterate sharecroppers to vote? And, yeah. and your response, do you remember what your response was? Yeah, but so, <laughs> um, we had gotten grease gunned on the highway in um, going from Greenwood to Greenville. Uh, Jimmy Travis, myself, and uh, Randolph Blackwell. Uh, Randolph Blackwell had come over from the Voter Education Project, um, and the money had uh, started to filter down to us. They wouldn't give the money to SNCC, but they gave money to what we organized as COFO. So all of the Mississippi um, Mississippi outreach of the national organizations were in COFO. So uh, Blackwell had come over, we had organized the meeting, and then uh, we were taking him back to the air, airport, and they had a little airport in Greenville. Um, so um, Jimmy caught a bullet, um, and then we regrouped. Um, and it, it happened that, um, LaFleur County had stopped the federal food allotments. So we raised money in Chicago, food in Chicago, and told people, well, if you want some of this food, you have to go register to vote. Um, and so we got hundreds of people going down to register, and then we were, uh, SNCC field secretaries were arrested. So, you know, Kennedy was still president. 
um, Burke Marshall was the assistant attorney general, Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general. And so Burke uh, filed suit against the city and got our cases removed to the federal district court in Greenville. And the judge was Clayton, Judge Clayton. Um, and uh, Burke had sent John Doa, he was a lawyer, I was on the witness stand, and the judge just had one question, which is why are you taking illiterates down to register to vote? So sharecropper illiteracy was the subtext of the right to vote. And so I, I didn't have a really historical sense at that time in my life. Um, so I, I answered it from the point of view of fairness, right? That, well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have denied a whole people access to literacy through your politics and then turn around and say, well, you can't do politics because you're illiterate. Um, I don't know if you, you guys know the um, court case, U.S. v. Louisiana and Judge Wisdom's opinion. So it would be good to, in, you know, in your studies to read it. Um, so the work we did kind of pushed the Justice Department. Uh, it's an issue that faces the country today, right? It's, it's an old issue. Uh, states' rights and the idea that states have, um, they have the constitutional authority uh, to insist on local control, right? So for education, it's property and local control in local school districts or local towns. For voting back then, it was the registrar. So the registrar decided who got registered, right? And that was part of the idea of local control, right? So, so the Justice Department filed suits against registrars, mm -hmm. right? Um, they ran into the issue, of course, of violence, um, and they uh, were skittish about filing a suit any place where um, the result might raise the question, why don't you have federal marshals right, to provide protection? Um, and then finally, um, one of the lawyers in the Justice Department um, came up with the idea of filing suits against the whole state. So they filed a suit against the state of Mississippi and Louisiana. And Judge Wisdom was on the Fifth Circuit, and he, read, he gave the opinion on December 31st, 1963, um, a little over a month after Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and he's the one that really laid it out in terms of the history of Louisiana. Um, and that being the reason why the state of Louisiana couldn't be entrusted with the registration of people to vote. Um, so the enforcement provision of the Voting Rights Act, I think, 
we got through the court cases. So Wisdom's decision, there was another a district judge in Alabama, Frank Johnson. Um, so there were a number of decisions in the courts um, which uh, laid the basis for the argument that you have to enforce this Voting Rights Act. Right? But Wisdom was the one that uh, said that, you know, the the National Democratic Party, the southern wing of the National Democratic Party for three quarters of a century was really uh, the political manifestation of white supremacy. He just put it right there in his, his decision. Um, okay, last question I wanted to ask before we open it up for Q&A. So if you have any questions, um, get ready for that. But I was really interested in your journey, your personal journey um, through doing this work, being a part of SNCC, and then distancing yourself from white people and going to Africa. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about what what made that decision, what that experience was like, and then coming back through that? Well, it's hard to think of myself as distancing myself from white people since I had so little contact with white people. I mean, they were just, you know, the few white people that we were uh, in contact with in the movement. And the Mississippi movement, uh, we held off um, bringing white people into Mississippi until we were getting ready for Freedom Summer. So there was a great push, you know, because um, Southwest Georgia um, had uh, white people working in Southwest Georgia as early as 1961, I think, right? So there was always a, a push, um, but uh, we held off on, on that. Um, so I didn't distance myself from white people. I distanced myself from advising white people about what the next step should be. In other words, what coming out of the movement in 64 and 65, um, when things had broken down, uh, Everyone was trying to figure out, well, what, do we, what should we do? And I didn't want to be part of the people that was trying to advise, say, people, you know, well, we did this and now we should do that. Um, and in fact, one of the SNCC field secretaries uh, told me, because I, after we came out of Atlantic City and I went back to Mississippi, I was talking to him, and I was uh, trying to say, and this is a young, you know, Mississippi born and bred SNCC field secretary, and I was talking to him about what we should do next. He looked up at me and said, you had your chance. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I wasn't in um, a mood of thinking that I should be talking to uh, people I've been working with about what to do next, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's part of that. Um, 
the, um, I turned 18 in the middle of my freshman year of college. And I was thinking then about um, my relationship to the country. Um, um, I was friends with Al Poussin. You, you guys know Dr. Poussin. Anyway, we went through high school together. But his father uh, ran a printing shop in New York, but the only people who were given business were the communists. So Al uh, ended up going to Red Diaper Baby camps in the summer, right? Uh, and so those camps, I went once, I didn't like them. Um, they sang songs, nobody played sports. But in the winter, they would hold um, hoot nannies and gatherings, and Pete Seeger would come, right? And so that's how I learned about lynching and what was going on in the South, listening to Pete Seeger. This is in the 50s, right? The country's in its McCarthy era, and Al would be telling me about the FBI agents, right, who were looking. So I decided to tell the, write to the draft board and said that um, I really don't think I want to fight in any of the country's up-and-coming wars, right? Because <laughs> we had just finished the Vietnam War, right? Uh, and so I, I got deferments. I had a Harlem draft board, so I got deferments um, through college, because you take a test, right? Uh, and then graduate school, and then Sputnik happened, right? The Russians sent that monkey up in space in 1957. And so when I left graduate school and began teaching math, they had expanded uh, deferments to include teachers of math and science. So while I was teaching math, I got more deferments. And then as soon as I went south, they called me up for a hearing and changed my status to 1A. So all the time I was working uh, down, I had 1A. But as long as Burke and uh, them were in the Justice Department, um, they had worked out an arrangement you know, with the draft people so they weren't going to draft us. right? Um, the idea is we were better off fighting this struggle down here than being in the Army. So that worked out. But then uh, Kennedy was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy left the Justice Department. Burke went to work for at IBM. Uh, and I was drafted. Um, I got the notice in July of 1966 to report August 1st. And so... Um, I left the country and made my way eventually to Tanzania. Um, but going to Tanzania didn't have to do with um, distancing myself from white people. Um, you'd have to ask, talk to my wife. I mean, she was, she was the one. 
It was interesting because the women were feeling it more. Um, the black women in SNAP. So I was feeling it through those relationships. Thank you. Um, so if anybody has any questions, we'll bring the mic out. Dr. Moses, uh, you've given a lot of speeches. Some of your lectures, you talk about lurching, that the U.S. tends to kind of lurch backwards, lurch forwards. I think maybe people would agree electing Barack Obama was something of a lurch forward. We're kind of experiencing maybe a lurch backwards right now. I wonder if you could talk about why we lurch as a country, and then maybe if you think we're gonna someday stop lurching and what we would have to do to get to that point. Yes, yeah, so, so I guess my question is what story do you have in your head about our country? Right. And so I've been uh, working to try to uh, be clearer about the story I carry in my head about our country. And um, so I'm working on a story um, which looks at the country in terms of um, a construct which is its constitutional eras, right? And so in that story, the first constitutional era from 1787 to 1863, 65, you know, pick your dates. Um, the country is, is trying to work with these two uh, concepts that are contradictory to each other. The idea of um, the constitutional people, the white property-owning men, and the constitutional property that they own, the Africans, right? Uh, and the country tries, you know that quote of Jefferson, um, we have the wolf by the ear? So Jefferson writes to John Holmes in 1820. John Holmes is uh, the representative from Maine. Um, and he says, uh, we have the wolf by the ear. We can neither hold on nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale, self-preservation is in the other. So the country is trying to balance this out across this constitutional era and you know, it comes crashing down with the war um, and we get a new constitution. We get the, the Civil War amendments uh, and we enter into what I think of as the second constitutional era. So, so you can think that um, after the war we lurch forward and we lurch forward into Reconstruction. We still, as a country, um, have, you know, we don't have the right story about Reconstruction, right? So we, 
we had to make up a story about Reconstruction. Uh, and the historians are just getting us out of that other story. Um, but I don't think, you know, the, the story of what really went on in Reconstruction is, is out there yet, right? But so that's a lurch forward, Reconstruction, right? In, in the American, you know, canon history, it's a lurch backwards. Reconstruction is a lurch backwards, right? Um, but so in my story, we lurch forward and we lurch forward in Reconstruction and then we lurch backwards. You can, uh, 1875, I mean, it started in 1874 in Colfax, Louisiana. People know about that. So you should Google that, but Colfax. Um, Louisiana had elected two governments, one Republican and one Democrat, and basically they annihilated uh, the black Republicans in Colfax. They just shot them down, um, and Grant did not send the troops up from New Orleans. Right? And they started what they call the White Leagues, and it spread to Mississippi in 1975. And um, that they just terrorized the Republicans, blacks, because remember, um, black, black Republicans outnumbered white Democrats as voters in Mississippi and had put Adelbert Ames in office as the governor uh, after the 15th Amendment was passed. Right. So he was governor, um, but he was powerless uh, watching. He, he actually tried to militarize some black regiments um, and they murdered the guy who headed up one of the black measurements, but so they terrorized and murdered people. So it was whites murdering blacks, but it was Democrats murdering Republicans, also. Right. Um, and um, they took over the Mississippi State Legislature. Alexander Percy, the Percy family. Does any, does anybody know of the uh, or read Walker Percy? Yeah. Yep. Read Walker Percy. So Alexander Percy is Walker Percy's great-grandfather, right? And um, he goes in as the respectable face of terror to oversee the articles of impeachment against Albert Ames and to um, get the money that was allocated for the education of the freed slaves reallocated to build the railroad infrastructure because Alexander Percy is at the, at the center of setting up the plantation cotton economy in, in the Delta. I mean, you have to understand the Delta is wild, right? Um, it's a country. I mean, there are bears there, you know, and panthers, right? I mean, it's just wild. 
And so there's no way, I mean, Grant couldn't go through with the army during the war. I mean, they had to go down past Vicksburg and come back up that way. There was no way to get through the Delta, right? So they needed this railroad system um, to set up the plantation economy. So that was lurching back, right? Um, circular 3591. No? Anybody? So you, should, you can Google it. So when you Google it, what comes up is um, the, um, I guess you call it the, the letter or the circular that Francis Biddle, who is the attorney general, sends to every state attorney general December 12, 1941, five days after Pearl Harbor. And Roosevelt has decided that he now needs black men, right? <coughs> and so the process of rounding up young black men because they don't have money and charging them with peonage or whatever and then leasing them to the mines under convict leasing by the tens of thousands comes to a halt because of World War II. So we lurch back until the, I think the civil rights movement, in some sense, is the next lurch forward. Right? Uh, it brings to an end what I think of as the second constitutional era. Um, and again, it lasted all of just about a little over three quarters of a century. Um, it's interesting because you can think about, well, what's going on for young black men in each constitutional era? Well, so in the first constitutional era, they are not in jail. Nobody's parking their property in jail, right? In the second constitutional era, they are being lynched and are being rounded up and put to work, right? In our constitutional era, there's no work for them and we have mass incarceration. So there's some sense, I mean, you can follow the same thing, you can ask, well, what's going on with respect to immigration in each era? Right. You can ask what's going on with respect to technology in each era, right? Because uh, somehow the eras and the technologies overlap. The first is agricultural, the second is industrial, and now here we are in information mm -hmm. technology, right? Um, so, so we're about two-thirds of the way under this story into our third constitutional era. You said you wanted to see the next lurch forward being one where every person in this country gets an adequate education. Well, if it doesn't happen, we won't lurch forward. I mean, the, you know, the sharecroppers were kind of the serfs of the industrial age, but they were hidden away in the plantations, right? Um, so we're growing serfs now in our cities. The kids, the Rodriguez case, people familiar with Rodriguez? 
you are. Anybody else? So Mexican-Americans marched out of their high school in 1968 in San Antonio, um, and their mothers took it to court. It hit the Supreme Court in 1973 in the case San Antonio versus Rodriguez, and Powell was the chief justice. He said, look, you can't come to the federal courts for equity relief because there's no substantive constitutional right to an education. So the courts, the whole law profession has gone state by state. There are 45 cases in 45 states, right? Um, and what you're facing is the the shift from industrial to information age technology. So it's a shift in the kind of work, right? So industrial technology, you operating machines, and you can do that with a high school education. Now you have um, computers. It's, it's Gary? Yeah. So he was describing um, what's going on in his computer class, right, at the University of Washington, right, and what is needed, right, in terms of um, what the students need to do, right, and so it's, it's knowledge work, right? So it's a different kind of work. Um, I mean, you can think about the last election as a referendum on the fact that uh, the country is, got, is being shoveled sharecropper education. I mean, that was the question that the judge asked me. Why are you taking sharecroppers, illiterates, down to register to vote? Well, Sharecropper education said, look, you people have been assigned this work, and you get the education at best for the work that you have been assigned, right? So basically, the education we're dealing out across the country is education for the work of the 20th century. We have not figured out, right? that we want to educate our kids for the work of the 21st century, except for those people at the top, right? Um, they, you know, they're making sure that their kids get, by hook or by crook, what they need. But so in some sense, you know, the last election <coughs> was a referendum on that question, but it's not, an, it's not part of the political discussion. Right, neither party. I mean, both parties are are, are guilty. <coughs> you know, the the Gathering Storm report. You guys know about that, right? So, the Alexander from Tennessee, right, a Republican. He asked the National Academy of Sciences to uh, issue a report to the nation about the needs for the 21st century in education, and they issued it in 2005. It's called Rising Above the Gathering Storm, right? And they asked them to list the 10 things needed to be done, right? The 10 most pressing things. And so the first bullet says the country should provide 10,000 more math and science teachers annually and should support them with more money if they go into underserved 
So Obama, I mean, Bush did his Hail Mary. He said, uh, America competes in its 2006 uh, address to the nation. No money, no legislation. And then they reissued it in 2010. Obama did his Hail Mary. He said, 100,000 in 10 years. No money, no legislation. Right. So, so we don't have... And no one, I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders, well, he's talking about, you know, giving college kids loan forgiveness. These kids aren't getting to college, and there's no, there's no program to get them there, and no, and neither political party has. So, so where is the energy going to come to head this off? Because if it isn't headed off, it won't, it pretty much won't matter. If the kids don't have the basic literacies that are needed so they can access the economic arrangements and they're caught in the cities, I mean, it won't be pretty, you know. And we see that already, you know. How do you feel about the algebra project then? Just a little bit on the algebra project, because this is your step trying to get a little lurch forward. Mm -hmm. we'll end so with that. yeah, so we've worked uh, pretty uh, hard uh, for you know since 1982. So um, you know it's over several decades, um, and NSF came out with an RFP in 2016 about broadening participation in STEM, uh, and it's sort of came our way, right, because they said they wanted to um, form over a 10-year period a network of alliances to do this, national alliances, right? Um, and so when I read the, the papers, which were the research base for the RFP, it was research done at Stanford uh, called Collaborative Impact Theory by Kania and Kramer. And so I looked at that and I said, well, the Mississippi theater of the civil rights movement had really national impact. It had none of these intermediary organizations to collaborate with, right? Um, what it did was collaborate with the people who had the problem and uh, formed an alliance of the civil rights organizations, right? And it had um, a very specific kind of, you know, finite goal, um, register people, get the vote, right? So we put in an application, a proposal to NSF that said, well, uh, we have a goal. It's the uh, math literacy for the bottom quartile, that it should they should have a standard appropriate for the 21st century. Um, they should leave high school ready to do college math for college credit, or if they're not going to college, math shouldn't be an obstacle to any career choice. Right? So this is the only appropriate standard for the 21st century. Right? And then we said, um, we want to collaborate with the people who have the problem, with the students in the bottom quartile, the teachers who teach them, the administrators that house them, and the communities that support them. 
Um, and we want to build an alliance around it. So they funded us um, to design an alliance. They funded about 60 different groups in 2016 and 2017. Um, in the 2016 RFP, they said that they were uh, going to fund five alliances in 2017, this year, right? And then, of course, we had our election, and uh, they didn't get their budget, right? Because um, the budgets are, I don't know, in this continuing resolution. You, you just get the budget you had for the year before or something, right? And so they haven't got, nobody's gotten their budget yet, I guess. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but the algebra project um, was in position. We just uh, tapped back into people we had been working with for a couple of decades and asked them if they want to be part of the alliance, this alliance around this goal, right? So we got about 70 different institutions and people that went in with us on our proposal. And um, we held two meetings, two big meetings um, under our proposals, because they funded us to hold a conference also about designing an alliance. So we did one in last February in St. Louis and then another in May in St. Louis. And out of those meetings, uh, we're still, people are working now in different places. Um, so, um, so one of the things that uh, happened because of the alliance is that people on the ground uh, have uh, begun to form local alliances. So like, um, and I don't think it would have happened without this push nationally. So in Miami, um, Florida International University's uh, education school, which is part of their uh, liberal arts uh, school and Broward County School District. They actually sent the chief a academic officer to our meeting uh, and their math person um, and the local algebra project there and the local YPP. They have a little local alliance um, down there which has actually gotten started it just happened that uh, we had a teacher um, who had uh, taught algebra project at Miami Northwestern in Liberty City for four years, and her class graduated last June. Uh, and so um, they arranged for her to start um, teaching at one of the schools in Broward County. Um, and so she has actually started uh, it's night and day because she had no support in Miami Northwestern and now she has uh, people are visiting her classrooms and um, there's a lot of support there. So, so, the, so the Algebra Project is trying to build a national alliance. That's the upshot. And hopefully NSF will get its budget. Not sure about that, right. um, but 
So I think people are going to keep going, even if NSF doesn't get its budget. I mean, I think, you know, they're figuring out ways to um, work together, right? So that's what's going on with the Algebra Project. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks sir.